All right, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Over the past week, I wrestled with knowing what to preach on this morning. I wrestled with what is it that we need to think about in light of the news we got last week. What is it that we need to be focused on as we walk through a time of hurt and a time of transition? And I, as the week went on, I could not shake the thought that we need our focus to be fixed upon God. That's where it has to be. It's so easy in our life for our circumstances or even the, our desires to be front and center in our gaze. That's what dominates what we are looking at. And the cares of this life and the pleasures and treasures of this world want to be prioritized. When that happens, our gaze drifts from God. But I was reminded even by a fellow pastor this week, the best solution for our hurt, the best solution for our struggles, the best solution for life in general is to have God be where we are focused. To have Him be the lens through which we see everything else. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dwell on Isaiah 40 to be reminded what our God is like. Now, Isaiah 40 is quite long, but we will be looking specifically at verses 12 through 31. And we see the point of that section is that knowing God brings comfort and strength to us in our hardships. Knowing God brings comfort and strength to us in our hardships. A better understanding of God and what He is like will help us naturally in our daily lives. And so for our time this morning, we want to dwell on God. And I want to take what Isaiah 40 teaches about God, and I want to bring it to the question of application of how does knowing God is fill-in-the-blank, powerful, wise, knowing how does knowing God... Help you in your hardships. That's what I want to answer for every section that we see about God. And I, I believe that comfort comes to us through knowing the character of God. Now, Isaiah 40 has some preceding context. So just to give you a little context, Isaiah 39 comes before chapter 40. And in Isaiah 39, we read about Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he had... At the, at this time, brought the envoys of Babylon, the, the, the people of Babylon, the messengers of Babylon, to come and see his prosperity. And so upon showing him everything he has, the prophet Isaiah then comes to Hezekiah, the king, and in disappointment warns him, because of his pride, because of the sin of the people, Babylon will overtake them and drive them into captivity. And interestingly, at the end of chapter 39, verse 8, Hezekiah, in his pride, believes that, well, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. 
And so that's fine. Let the word of the Lord be done. And so at the end of Isaiah 39, you have this expectation that judgment is coming upon wayward Israel. And it does come upon them. We know in 586, 587 B.C. that Babylon took uh, Judah. Israel had already fallen. The northern nations or the northern um, tribes and then finally Judah, the southern, had fallen to Babylon. But Isaiah 40 comes along and begins with a looking forward to hope. Hope of coming rescue from this judgment. And so there's a shift in the book of Isaiah at chapter 40. And chapter 40 lays the foundation for what follows in the rest of the book. And it's quite clear from Isaiah 40, the focus of this section is on God. It begins with God wanting his people to be comforted. Wanting them to know his word. One writer summarizes verses 1 through 11 of chapter 40 as answering the question, does God want to deliver us? Does God want to deliver his people? And the answer is, well, of course he does. There is a theme that runs through those 11 verses of hope and restoration that God has not cast his people away. He would rescue them. In fact, he himself would be their rescue. And then in verse 12, we shift to not just focusing on does God want to deliver us, but can God deliver his people? Can he even do it? And so the rest of this chapter demonstrates God's ability to deliver his people. He wants to deliver them. He wants to rescue them. And he can. He's the only one who can. He is the incomparable God. And so we see the doctrine of God brings assurance and peace to us, to God's people, in the most troubling of times because they were in troubling times. And the response at the end, you might be familiar with verse 31, and we'll get there about waiting for the Lord and your strength being renewed. The response that's called from for us is to trust in God, to wait with hope in Him. So let's begin with the first section Verses 12 through 26, we're going to divide this in two parts. 12 through 26, we see that we'll be comforted by God's character. Comforted by God's character. Let's begin reading verse 12. We see a question here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who? Well, the idea, it's God and God alone. This is talking about the power of God, the might of God. Imagine all the seas, all the oceans on this world. That's a lot of water. Sir, large areas of this world, and they are all within God's grasp. I know for me, if I get on a lake and the water is tumultuous and you're kind of up and down, I feel unsteady, well, un- uh, not at ease. But God does not feel that way even when the oceans rage as hard as they could. They are all within His powerful grasp. They all must submit to Him. Uh, Don't we see that, right, with Jesus calming the storm? 
Even the craziest of storms at sea are nothing compared to His power. But not just the waters that He controls, that He has the power over, but even it marked off the heavens with a span. Imagine how big this universe is. God is so mighty that they are... This universe is nothing to him. He could easily measure it. It talks about the idea of the span of his hand, which would be if you had your open hand from your tip of your thumb to tip of your pinky. This universe is huge, but compared to God, it is so tiny. God is so much greater. The earth itself is just over 94 million miles to the sun. That's a pretty long run. But it's nothing to God. In fact, the Psalms tell us that where can you even go to flee from the presence of God? You can't go anywhere. But not just the the heavens, the universe, not just the waters, that God is powerful and bigger than all that, but even the mountains are nothing compared to Him. It's estimated that Mount Everest weighs around 357 trillion pounds but it's nothing to God. It's a speck of dust. That is how amazing and mighty our God is. The the things we would consider grand and huge and humble us even with how big and powerful they are are nothing to the King of this universe. Isaiah 48.13 says of the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. God is the creator and the creation must submit to him. Everything God did in creation, he made exactly as he wanted it. And it was made exactly how he commanded it. Even to the level of precision that God desired. Everything is exactly where God wants it to be. And the universe functions exactly how He intends it to. Now, granted, it is marred by the fall we read of in Genesis 3. It is affected by sin. But even today, at this moment, it is functioning according to His sovereign power. And one day, in His sovereign power, He will make it all brand new. Verse 12 is to remind us that God is grand and mighty. He is all-powerful. So let's ask our question. How does knowing God is all-powerful help you in your hardships? Well, it realigns our perspective that the things that look overbearing and too big for us are actually not too big for God. He is able to work them for His purposes, bringing about even good and His glory. And so I can trust, you can trust that He will work through the trials you face and is even able to easily give you the strength you need to walk through them. And our faith is strengthened as we remember the all-powerful one. How about verses 13 and 14? It says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? 
Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here Isaiah is pointing to the knowledge and wisdom of God. God is all-knowing and he is all-wise. He knows everything, including what you are thinking and what you are feeling now, what you have thought and what you have felt this past week, what you will think and what you will feel this coming week. God is perfect in his knowledge, and he knows what is best to accomplish his will and how to do so for his glory and for your good. But he doesn't just know it. Remember, he is all-powerful that he knows how to accomplish it. No one can fully comprehend God. No one is his equal. He has no teacher and he does not seek anyone's counsel. In fact, God is the teacher. Proverbs 2, 6 tells us, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God teaches man knowledge and wisdom. Man cannot teach God anything. God wasn't guessing at creation. God wasn't guessing when He made you. He wasn't just hoping that He would get everything right and by chance all these chemicals would mix together and boom, bang, there you go. He didn't do that. He made you perfectly as He desired. No one, in fact, has taught Him the path of justice or what is right, and how to do what is right. God is truth, and He determines what is right. And what is right is what is obedient to His commands and in line with His character. And He is faithful to Himself. He does what is right. Verse. These verses in 13 and 14 are cited, in fact, by Paul in Romans 11.34, where he is praising God for uh, His ways with Israel and the salvation that comes to all through the Gospel when they repent repent and believe in Christ. And he's uh, dwelling on that God's ways are beyond our full comprehension. We We cannot even fully comprehend the creation. How can we fully comprehend God behind or beyond? How can we fully comprehend God beyond what He has revealed in His Word? We are absolutely dependent for God to reveal Himself if we're going to know Him. We can't master God. There is always more to dwell and learn about on him, with Him. In fact, Colossians 2.3 tells us that all knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Christ. And so if we want to know God, we must go to Christ. You must repent and believe in the gospel. That Christ came and died for your sins to reconcile you to God. So that in fact you would even have the mind of Christ to comprehend what God allows, what he is like. So God is all knowing. He is all wise. And so we ask our question again. How does knowing God is all wise and all knowing, how does that help you in hardships? Well, when difficulties and heartaches come your way, you can remember that God knows all and knows what is best for you. We can trust Him. We can trust Him even though we might not understand everything. 
We can trust that He is working out His plan for our lives and our sanctification. I can trust Him that He can use these hardships to make me more like Jesus and bring Him more glory. Can God help me in this trial? Absolutely. He has the power to do all that He pleases, including rescuing and restoring His people. So our confidence is to be in Him, not ourselves. Now verses 15 and 17. Say, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is God's independence. God's independence. He is not dependent upon any nation or anything or anyone to sustain him or to guide him. He exists and reigns independently and sovereignly. Yes, he did choose Israel, his people Israel. And we read about that in the Old Testament and we read about it again in the New Testament. But he has not depended upon Israel and he's not dependent upon their sacrifices that we read of in the Old Testament. He's not dependent on those to sustain him like many of the pagan gods would teach or pagan religions would teach. He didn't need them to feed him. But the people were to be comforted by remembering that God is greater than any and all nations. In fact, He uses nations to accomplish His purposes. He did that with Babylon to bring discipline to His people Israel. He did that with Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would send His people back, God's people back to the promised land after their captivity. In fact... We read of in Daniel 4 about Nebuchadnezzar, whom God had humbled, the king of Babylon, whom God had humbled. And after his time of humility, Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Says this about the Most High One, the one to be honored and praised about God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one, not even the most powerful man in the world, of the most powerful nation at whatever time of history you want to pick, could say to God, what have you done? How dare you do that? Isaiah references Lebanon in verse 16. Lebanon was known for its prosperity and its huge cedar trees, which only few remain. But the example here he gives of that it would not suffice for fuel is that if all of its forests and animals were to be sacrificed, it would still fall short of displaying how great and how mighty God is. The sacrifice would never fully be enough because God is so glorious. And so our hope and our trust isn't to be in a nation. 
It's a great Fourth of July message right there, right? But it's not. That's the truth. It's not to be in a nation. It's to be in God. And we praise God for the nation He puts us in. No one, no nation can stop God's plans, can stop His ways, can change His character. He is the sovereign one that all creation must submit to. So, okay, how does knowing God is independent and sovereign help you in your hardships? Well, it helps me by reminding me that I do not have to worry that God doesn't know or isn't in control of what's going on. I don't have to worry. I shouldn't worry. I can trust Him to do as He sees best. My soul and my troubled mind can rest knowing that God is not hindered or limited by my circumstances. That ought to bring us peace. Now in verses 18 through 20, we read about the incomparable God. He says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. God is incomparable. Idols come nowhere close to what God is like. In fact, it was forbidden to make an idol in the Ten Commandments. You could say the first and the second commandment forbid it. Since God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and completely independent, there is nothing that we can compare to Him. We are not to shape God into something more understandable for us or something we like better. This is the foolishness of idolatry. The foolishness of it. Okay, well, let's pause for a second. What is idolatry? Idolatry is loving, living for, dedicated to, or delighting in something more than God. Loving something more than God, living for something more than God, dedicated to something more than God, and delighting in something more than God. That is idolatry. If you think about that, it doesn't take crafting a little gold image to commit idolatry. In fact, the real issue is the desires of our heart. What must I have to make me happy? Is that something more than God? If the answer is yes, then that's idolatry. And we must repent of that. Acts 17, 29-31, Paul says, talking to the people, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We must repent of the idols of our heart and turn to Christ who paid 
for those idols we worship. Who gave his life so that we could be forgiven of those idols we worship. One writer said, One cannot make an image of God, any likeness of him that we contingent creatures attempt, will of necessity be wrong. Furthermore, it plays directly into the hands of our passionate desire to make God controllable by making him part of our cosmos. Our cosmos. Mankind naturally wants to make God more acceptable to his liking, conforming God to his own image. But if you do that, you've lost the biblical God. So I was wondering, okay, in what ways do we try to make God more acceptable? Well, we try to make him acceptable to what we think he should be like. Even believers can fall into this trap when we think God should only give me what I think is good. We may not say that out loud, but the way we handle circumstances or the way we go about life is, God, why aren't you giving me what is good? What makes me happy? What brings me comfort? And so we distort what God is really like, forgetting that He does what is good for His glory and what is good, really good, for us. What is going to conform us more to the image of Christ. But we do this also in our message to the lost world. Those who don't trust in Christ, we try to make God more acceptable. And you, we read of that. We might downplay the judgment of God. We might downplay His wrath. We might downplay the Lordship of Christ. That just say, ask Him, you know, just ask Jesus into your heart and then everything will be fine. You got your fire insurance, you know, so you're good. Forgetting, no, that Christ is Lord and we must submit to Him. We must repent of trying to make God more palatable for ourselves or for the world. How does knowing God is incomparable help you in your hardships? Well, no matter what happens, I am reminded that God is the one worthy of my worship. He is the one I must live for. I must trust. I must obey even when life falls apart. My, my worship, my life is to be dedicated to Him. My thoughts and my emotions are to be fixed upon Him because He is worthy. Look at verses 21 through 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When He blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
This is just talking about the about God's sovereignty and as creator, God's sovereignty as creator and ruler, the king of kings, the great king. There is a sense in which God's powerful sovereignty and rule should be obvious to people. Acts 14:17 says, "Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons." Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is supreme over all and creation points to him and even how people are provided for by God. That points to his goodness. That he cares for his creation. But he sits above his creation. He is exalted. He is transcendent, high and lifted up. The master ruler and all of earth, all its inhabitants are Described as being like grasshoppers. Tiny. He rules over all. And he stretches, says he stretches out like a curtain. Stretches the heavens out like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God powerfully provides for his creation, even giving them a place to dwell and so this demonstrates God's power and care, which should, in, should have encouraged the people of Israel in their hard times, and it should encourage us as we realize that God is able to care for us in the midst of hardship. In fact, He's so much in control that He is in control of history. Princes and rulers, as it refers to, are talking about human leaders and the greatest of leaders are like nothing to him. They are as emptiness, it says. Good for nothing. He makes them useless. It's the idea of a desert. It's dry, parched, no life, nothing there, no good. And so those who would be considered significant in man's eyes and those who have governing powers have no rule over God. They are like a barren desert with nothing to offer compared to the Lord who rules over all, including the highest of dignitaries. Any power they do have, any power government has, it comes from God. He is the one that dictates His will to all creation. In fact, He is the master of history. He is the Lord of all nations and all nations have come and gone, yet he has remained the same. Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And so in verse 24, he talks about how easily they are carried away when he blows upon them. When God intervenes, our life seems so short. Nations, history seems so short. This draws us to consider the brevity of life, the shortness of life. James 4.14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so we ought to be worshiping and trusting in this great ruler, the sovereign ruler, God Almighty. And we ought not, knowing how short life can be, we ought not waste our life. We ought not wait to trust in Christ. We ought to invest now in eternal things. We ought to trust in the Lord today. 
Now notice in verse 25 there, there was a shift in who's talking. God Himself speaks. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. He's God Himself here is challenging the audience to consider. Okay, think of everyone in creation. Everything in creation. Okay, who possibly is like me? Who possibly is like Yahweh, the Sovereign Lord? Go ahead. Who? No one. That's the intended answer here. There is no one. He alone. I think it's fascinating. Isaiah says here, he refers to the Holy One. Which, if you remember the book of Isaiah, should draw you all the way back to chapter 6, where Isaiah gets the view of God on His throne. Where the angels circling around are declaring worship and praise to Him and are covering their faces because they are not worthy. And so you have the master ruler of all creation challenging mankind. Who? Who is like me? There's no one. God is distinct in His power, His knowledge, His wisdom, His deity, His greatness, His independence, and His sovereignty. But what really sets Him apart is that He is holy. He is perfect. Morally perfect. He is righteous. He is set apart from His creation. And He does all that He pleases. And we as a creation ought to bow and worship Him. In fact, He says, look at the heavens. Referring to look at the stars. The Lord governs the stars. He moves them. He sustains them. And yet, those mighty stars cannot be compared to Him. And when we look up, it does humble us. But it ought to remind us that God is far greater than we are. And God takes care of us. If God takes care of the most distant of galaxies, God is most certainly going to take care of His prize of creation, which is you. The one He has made in His own image. And thankfully... God does not lose His creation or misplace it. Unlike how we might misplace our keys or our phone. So how does knowing God is our Creator and the Master help us in our hardships? It reminds us that God is the Sovereign One in whom we are to trust. No matter how hard life gets, we can trust that God is doing exactly what He deems best. And we can rest knowing that one day He will return and make all things right. And so that brings Isaiah here to the conclusion, our second point, trusting in God's care. Trusting in God's care. Verses 27-31, through let's read it together. Why do you say, in light of all this, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But 
They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Knowing that the Lord is sovereign and mighty and the master over all nations should draw the people to trust and hope in God, even in the face of difficulty. So that question for this section, is God able to deliver his people? The obvious answer is yes. And so we shift here at the this last portion to, okay, how do we respond to that? This section, though, prevents, this, these last verses prevent us from thinking that God is just a cold dictator, sitting up in heaven, ruling as he pleases, and really doesn't care. He doesn't care about us. That's preventing us from thinking that. Instead, we see that the transcendent Holy One is also what we would say is imminent. He is near to us. He cares for His people, which is such an amazing thought. The One whom the mighty stars submit to cares for you. He strengthens you. He provides for you. He does what is best for you. Considering the character of of God and His rule, Isaiah questions them in verse 27, questions the people about how they could possibly think that God doesn't know their situation. Remember, He's the all-knowing one. The Lord knows their situation and is even in control of it just as He is for us. The question of that, that he challenges them is why would you think that God has disregarded you? It's impossible. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Which is a foolish statement. And so Isaiah says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God loves His people. He takes care of His people. And it should be dramatically obvious at this point that God can rescue His people. I mean, there's no one who can stop him. Pharaoh couldn't stop him back in the Exodus. But God will do what is right. And He is the everlasting one, meaning He is the eternal one who has always been and will always be and will always be the same, which is reassuring. God doesn't change His character. He doesn't go from being faithful to His people to, you know what, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm feeling a little, you know, just upset with them. So I'm going to just, you know, cast them away today. Oh, next day. Had a great night's sleep. Okay. Feeling, where are my people? I'm going to be faithful to them today. God doesn't change like that. He doesn't change like we do. In fact, He is the constant, steady one. He is, He does not dwindle in His strength. Even in the creation account of Genesis, He did not lose any ounce of power or energy when He made all things. Yet, 
as Isaiah talks about here, and we can probably relate to, we lose strength. We get tired, worn down. Which ought to point us to see that we desperately need God. We desperately need Him. And He is so gracious towards us. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. This is His grace. The faint are referring to those who are weary when their natural strength fails. I don't know if you've ever had that, the, said the, the, the phrase, I just can't keep going. I, ju- I just can't do anymore. God doesn't have that. God doesn't say that. While we say it though. And so Isaiah is calling us to look to God for your strength. In fact, good. It's good you recognize you can't do it on your own. You have to flee to God. Pray that He would give you what you need to endure. To walk faithfully. Because even the youth shall faint. The example here is those in their life that have the most abundant energy. Okay, go serve in children's ministry. You will see that. The most abundant energy, the most abundant strength. When people at their prime in life Even they will grow weary. Even they will be exhausted and wore down from the hardships in life. The hardships in life will wear them down because we are frail. And God knows we are frail. But He provides what frail people need to keep pressing on. And so we wait for the Lord. We wait upon Him. One writer says this means complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow Him to decide the terms. To wait on Him is to admit that we have no other help either in ourselves or in another. Therefore, we are helpless until He acts. By the same token, to wait on Him is to declare our confidence in His eventual actions on our behalf. Thus, waiting in Hebrew is not merely killing time but a life of confident expectation. End quote. Confident expectation. We trust God through whatever season. We trust Him while we continue to move forward seeking to obey Him, seeking to be faithful. And as we trust Him moving forward, we remember that our hope is fixed upon Him. Our confident expectation is that He will do as He says. He is the source of our hope. And yet, we still remain patient even through trials. We remain patient even as we wait for our Lord to return. And as we wait, we recognize that we are weary, we are frail, we are weak. But God is the one who renews our strength. He is the one that gives us New strength. What we need to press on. And so that though weak, we are strengthened and full of life and what we need to endure the challenges ahead. And so He gives us what we need to run the race before us, meaning to run the exceptional de- through, to move through the exceptional demands of life and yet to walk Faithfully with Him in the ordinary daily grind of life. 
And the Lord will provide for us what we need. He will do this. Notice the future references there. He shall do this. He will do this. It's a promise-like language there. So let's ask the final question then. How does knowing God cares for you help you in your hardships? Well, the better I know God and how He cares for me, the more certain I am to trust Him and not let my hope in Him be beaten. In good times of life, we know and enjoy God's loving care. In times of darkness, though, we must cling to what is true. And that is that God loves and cares for His people. He always does, and He always will, no matter how hard life may be. So we trust Him. We patiently persevere, knowing we're dependent on Him. And we keep our focus on Him so that everything else in life is, as one writer would say, the periphery. What's your priority? What is front and center in your daily life? Is it God? Or is it something else? Someone else? Please make it God because a better understanding of Him will only help. Knowing God brings the comfort and strength to us that we need for hardships. Look to Him. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. It is impossible to wrap our minds fully around how powerful and mighty and big You are. To think that the the biggest of stars, the biggest of oceans, all of them are like nothing compared to You. So Father, help us to spend more of our time meditating, thinking upon who You are and what You're like. And as we do that, may that affect how we view whatever we're going through in our life. May we be quicker to look to You, to pray even, to trust in You. We thank You for the grace You have shown us in Christ that You even make it possible through Him that we can know You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.